0: festive welcome to Liars League, where writers write, actors read, audience eats mince pies and everybody wins. I've been checking the list, checking it twice, and I can see we have a real mix of people here tonight. Some of you have been naughty. Some of you have been very naughty, and at least one of you has been deliciously wicked. You know who you are. Do come and introduce yourself later. Be that as it may, tonight we celebrate the impending nativity, or the solstice, or maybe the annual John Lewis ad, with our theme of naughty and nice five seasonal tales which almost certainly wouldn't get time off for good behavior rendered into exquisite existence by our sugar and spice actors we'll have three stories in the first half then a break to hunt down any stray pies and to refresh your mulled wine and eggnog before a yule log jam infamous liesley book quiz and two final tales of comfort and joy. Or perhaps Krampus and Grinch. Time will tell. Now, the only bells we want to hear during the performance are sleigh bells. And even then, Santa would be well advised to wait for the interval. So please, muffle your phones in at least five feet of luxury tinsel, Or perhaps turn them off, or to silent night. The lists are still open for last-minute downgrades. Our first story of the evening will be Gluten-Tolerant by Mike Clark, and be read by Amy Nielsen Smith. Mike has a creative writing MA from Manchester Metropolitan University, and we're not writing filthy short stories, multitasks by working on a novel and writing pub reviews in the Sunday papers. He works in media in Soho, where he can be spotted writing while observing hipsters in trendy coffee bars rather than bakeries. Amy is a multidisciplinary artist by day, creative director of a blind bit of difference, tasting colour, creating sensory poetry with visually impaired poets. Their current anthology, glowingly reviewed by Michael Rosen. By night, a poetry brothel courtesan. Amy! (laughs)
1: Gluten Tolerant by Mike Clark. Fuck you, Jack. Merry Christmas. That's what I should have said. Instead, I mutter, see you later then, at home, with a calculated passive-aggressive cutting edge. It'd be wasted on a pissed-up arsehole. We're in Bermondsey, last night before Christmas, last Friday night before Christmas, down the beer mile again, with mates, mostly Jack's. You know the place. A mile-long strip of craft breweries just under the railway arches. If you're too basic to know it, then you'll never work on my PR agency. Jack swears virtually all his social media deals are sealed here, over a pint of craft IPA on a Friday afternoon. All free-range and fair enough. But the evenings inevitably end, with contracts celebrated at someone's new-build flat in Rotherhide or Limehouse, the boys in a daze of drugs and video games, and their bored girlfriends bonding over competitive stories of sex and shoes. Not this time. We only moved in into our studio in Canada Water on Monday. We're renting, naturally. We've only been together since last year's Wilderness Festival, but shacking up in the same bedroom brings that property ladder a little bit closer. I made Jack promise that this afternoon's carousing wouldn't blur into the evening. I mean, I was even going to cook. Well, waitrose, Christmas eating for two with own brand Prosecco, crab and avocado, spheres, pancetta wrapped turkey with gravy and millionaire shortbread. Get me? Charlie babes, once we hit Druid Street Market I'll make our excuses and we'll shoot. Now we've arrived, of course, the only person he's making bloody excuses to is me. Mega quick check in with Josh, Croft half tower bridge babes about the data lake. Data lake? I want to drown him in it. So I grab my bag and flounce out the brewery tasting room. I stomp into the market as the stall are packing away, crushing empty boxes under their feet in their transit vans. I wait, half a minute, to see if Jack reacts to my flouncing out and pursues me. He doesn't. The wind's whipped up and the glorious sunset has been extinguished by oppressive grey clouds. It's bloody, chilly. A single snowflake spirals downwards, landing and melting on my nose. The four pints I've downed with a geyser sloshing around in my stomach and I feel a bit wobbly. I'm hit by an overpowering hunger, triggered by the pervasive aroma of baking bread. I'm in PR. I have an MA in marketing. I know how to seduce people. Pumping out bakery smells to persuade customers to spend is one of the whoriest tricks in the book. But it works. Especially on harpist women who've only eaten a vegan falafel flatbread all day. <laughs> <laughs> and that was six starving hours ago. I practically stumble over the source of my temptation. An A-board outside a railway art unit declares in a uh, most unlovely design, artisan bakery. No branding, just badly handwritten chalk. These people need professional advice. <laughs> The bakery itself is equally unprepossessing. The outside still resembles the dingy lock-up it probably was about six months ago. The boarding is covered in graffiti, but that bread of heaven smell escapes through the double doors. It fills my nostrils and drags me inside. The bakery is Spartan. a trestle table with a plastic gingham tablecloth displays a rather miserable selection of bread, and I'm mortified to discover that a new crumbs remain of the seasonal panettone and St Lucia's buns. I suppose it is past six and the market's winding down. I mean, I'm lucky it's open at all. With no prices or product descriptions, it's a binary choice between a chunky traditional cob or a flour-dusted bloomer. (coughs) I wait to be served by one of the staff members, who's apparently working here. And I wait. He's standing to the side, too wrapped in conversation over a piece of bloody dough to notice me. This chap definitely needs my marketing mojo, but can he afford me? I glare at the guy, clear my throat, tap my converse on the concrete floor. He's about my age, I imagine. Tall, lean-looking, even when wearing an apron over a Joy Division T-shirt. He has a masculine, angular face, jawline softened with a de bushy beard. His hair is long and tied back into a ponytail, which I'm not convinced conforms to safety standards.
2: <laughs>
1: a drift of chilly air blows through the doors. Outside, it's a full-on blizzard, and there's that uncanny dampening of sound that com- accompanies a heavy snowfall. Oh, shit. I must have left my umbrella up, by the numbers, up the road. Eventually, Mr. Bakerman glances up from kneading and clocks me. I frown in return, but he smiles in an honest, unapologetic way. Well, I'm immediately, immediately disarmed. He washes his hands scrupulously. Short staffed, not his fault. He approaches the table. I'm kind of hoping when he speaks that it's with a smoky French accent. <laughs> <laughs> he remains silent, staring at me, expectantly. Um, is that one the sourdough? I point to a loaf. Hormeal cob and white sourdough bloomer. He replies in an accent that I can merely place as unspecified northern. (laughs) I'm rather devastated he didn't give me credit for my loaf identification skills. That one please. I indicate the sourdough. Five pounds. Fuck, that's (laughs) steep. Even for London farmer's market I think while murmuring, oh that's fine. And fumbling somewhat drunkenly with my purse. He wraps the loaf in a paper bag. Is here? No way. I hand over virtually all my cash. His blue eyes catch mine as he hands me the loaf. His gaze drops lower and lingers a second. I like it but turn prudently to away towards the, towards the door, only to see a riot of white snowflakes. Mind if I stay and nibble it in here while this blows past? I ask. should only be a few minutes. <laughs> Sure. He points to a wooden bench in the corner. I settle down and survey the bakery. A stainless steel oven and racks of baking trays fill the rear arch. A staircase at the side leads to an upper level laid out to what looks like a mattress. Oh, I'm So hungry, I can't do anything except sink my teeth into the loaf. Oh, it is sublime. The aromatic crust yields into a chewy, textured, savoury white core. I check my phone. Surely Jack isn't going to leave me to struggle home alone in this. The baker returns with a supple slab of dough. I watch, transfixed, as he manipulates, stretches, pummels. He's completely focused, never once looking in my direction. I stand up and walk closer. Sorry. Do you mind me watching? My attempts at bread-making never rise, I say. Never been a problem for me. He grabs the dough, tosses it high in the air, catches it as it tumbles and slams it down onto the preparation table. Hard, very hard. His arms are swathed in tattoo sleeves. I'm intrigued. I want to move nearer, assess the designs. Underneath the taps, the sinews stretch from wrist to elbow, veins bulging from his taut forearms. His fingers pinch and massage the dough. He punches it with a fist. Finally, he tosses it into a huge mixing bowl which he covers with cling film. Closing time, I'm afraid, he says crushingly. I'd love it if you could give me a lesson. I'll pay, I say, over eagerly. Sure, he replies, washing his hands. I'm ready with my O-phone to pick the date. Still no notifications from Jack. But he goes outside, brings in the snow-speckled blackboard, and bolts the door closed. Sorry, but I am still in here. Didn't you want a lesson? You'll do it now, I ask. Got snacked. Weekend afternoon's opening's only for show. For the soak the Bay Brigade. The best bread's made in the early hours. Sets the rhythm of life, doesn't it? I'm not going anywhere, he says. I guess it's only seven, I say. I keep up there for a few hours on a Friday. Tonight I was going to prep a batch of festive stollen before I put my head down. Probably better for me to wait until the snow settled, I say. Funnily enough, I don't eat much bread. My boyfriend said he's gluten intolerant, but I think that's just more of his bollocks. (laughs) He raises his eyebrows while bringing me an apron and a selection of organic flour. You seem to like someone. And you seem to value to be somebody that puts something she puts in her body. I'm always looking out for the genuine and natural. It's simpler and purer. Flour, salt, water, yeast. If your ingredients are top quality, the passion flows through your fingertips, and that's all you need. Although, I'd be bankrupt if I didn't chuck in a couple of handfuls of sun-blushed tomatoes and Alfonso fucking olives for the Waitrose wankers. He rolls out a long, firm, pattern of marzipan to go inside the stolen, he explains with him adding water i stir up a hunk of dough i massage the ball with my fingers squeezing and folding but i'm not achieving that essential elasticity the viscous dough's sticking to my fingers more flour i ask no Your techniques needs more practice. Want me to show you? I nod. He stands behind me, reaching around me, placing his large hands over mine. This is how you need. You have to sense the give and the spring in the dough. His beard chin, his bearded chin brushes my shoulder his fingers gently leading mine, is this okay? Carry on. I push my back against him. We need together. His hands are strong and sensitive, prompting and leading every touch, every action, every breath a response to mine. Intoxicated, I become heady with the experience, striking out on my own, pummeling, slapping and stretching until he orders me to stop. <laughs> the oven don't come on until four in the morning. You could shake it now. Take it with you to rise and cook at home or you could pop back tomorrow and I'll bake it for you. How do you want it? Rolled out into a bowl for a cob or extended out long for a baguette. There's a message on my phone. Brought the boys back to our new place for a blast of Black Ops 4. Wanker. <laughs> I'd like the full... Experience, I reply. My oven's puny, anyhow. You said you sleep over. I'm really not in a rush to go anywhere. It'll take an hour or two to let it properly prove, he says. Isn't quality bread best tasted straight out of the oven, I say. Later, Looking down from upstairs, I see how my dough has risen and swollen, as if it's alive, as if he's putting that rhythm of life into it, just like he's putting the rhythm of life into me. I wake to the smell of baking bread and the sun piercing through a small window in the frontage. Diesel engines idle and snow shovels scrape the tarmac as the market set up outside. I find him downstairs, stripped to the waist, sweat glistening among the loaf tins and baking trays. My loaves emerge, scalding hot from the oven. His asbestos fingers pop them into brown paper bags. I clutch the bread to my chest, radiantly warm. Anything I can do to help? I ask. He doesn't answer. Too busy burning, turning out loaves from tins onto the cooling racks. I'll put up the blackboard outside on my way out. I suggest. Perfect. He smiles broadly. Back at the flat, Jack is comatose, spread eagled on the sofa in front of the Xbox beer cans, rolled notes, and a pack of Rizlers lie by his side, and two passed-out mates. I sit in the kitchen and devour every crumb of those divine loaves. Then I open the fridge, remove the crab and avocado spheres, panchetta wrapped turkey with gravy and millionaire shortbread, and empty the lot over Jack's head. (laughs) Merry fucking Christmas! Babe. Slamming the door behind me, I dash to the Jubilee line. There is a baker in Bermondsey who needs his blackboard chalking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Uh, second story. Will they Be The Man Who Brought Gold by Mark Sadler, read by Sophie Carpenter. Mark lives in Southend-on-Sea. His work has mostly appeared on the Smoke, a London periodical website. He's writing a novel set in London at the turn of the millennium, and inspired by a misheard Tindistix lyric. A Rose Bruford College graduate, Sophie studied American theatre, Theatre credits include appearances at Soho, ADC, Arcola Mm Theatre, The Crucible at Books and Opera House, and The Secret of Life of Sissy Tancock at Hackney Empire. TV, film, and radio credits include Monster 1983, an audible play, Evil Never Dies, appearing alongside Tony Scannell, Suspicion on Discovery ID, a Tokyo drama, BBC Radio 4, and Twirly Wounds on Mm -hmm. CBeebies. Sophie!
3: The Man Who Brought Gold by Mark Sadler. From a seam of molten gold on the wounded bed of the Adriatic Sea, a curl of magma drawn from the earth on a serpentine current was walked into a bottom-heavy S-shape. It hardened as it cooled on a rising stream of bubbles, breaking the surface a few minutes after it formed, where it assumed the bobbing silhouette of a swan in profile. By late afternoon, it had entered the Venetian lagoon, nudging itself unnoticed along the battered walls of the interior canals that reflected murky cross-sections of buildings, garnished with Christmas lights. A pair of large hands, the color of mahogany, the flesh welted with buried shrapnel, reached down, raising it from the channel, water pouring from the honeycombed rock. The man's name was Melko. The object that he held was called a lava swan. He had lived in the city long enough to know that the people considered them lucky and displayed them in the windows of their homes and businesses. He left it leaning upright against the door of Della Cava, a seaport vintner that traded medicinal wine made from salt grape. Wiping his scarred palms on his trousers, he ambled across the plaza towards a pair of towering double doors made from dulled, embossed metal with a smaller wicket gate for pedestrians inset at the bottom. Long ago, Packet Hall had been a commoner's ballroom. Between the wars, it was a meeting hall and afterwards a covered fish market. Latterly, it had been a staging post where tourist luggage, offloaded from the coaches, trains and boats, was made ready for delivery to the hotels along the city alleyways and private pushways. At night, the atmosphere inside was subdued. The illumination dimmed. The delivery trolleys pushed together. A yellow oblong of light filled the doorway to the communal bathroom. The majority of the porters were African immigrants. A few had remained after work to eat together and play dominoes. Here comes the sweeper, said Bashir, as Melko entered. He was standing with some other men beside a wheeled notice board. A thumb-tacked map of Venice had the words Nitrates Proven scrawled across the top in red pen. Red lines marked stretches of canals that had been closed for cleaning. An arbitrary space near the centre of the enormous hall was furnished like a living room with rugs comfortable chairs and tall brass and the tall brass lampstand. Axelam sat there in her recliner, the stump of her right thigh protruding from her baggy shorts. A needle made from a curved thorn was skewering a cloud of woolly white fibre erupting from a branch of sheep bramble, drawing the coarse threads across a yawning hole in the heel of a black dress sock. I have lots of work for you this evening, she croaked sleepily. She retired her mending to the floor and retrieved a clipboard containing a list of missing luggage. Priorities in red, Christmas presents in gold wrapping. The client is a British actress. Deliver before midnight. They want to go to bed before Christmas when it is still Christmas Eve. So don't bring back here. Take directly to the address. Where and when did the gifts go missing? Sit district this afternoon. Who was the potter responsible? Nadifa. he says he never had the (laughs) presents. She snorted her disbelief. Then it is Elijah's doing, said Malcolm. He takes from the younger men. They are inexperienced, and they they are not planning to stay here long, so it is easy for them to acquiesce. You can negotiate? Yes, it is possible. There is some extra money if you can recover. Also, there is money for expenses. He waved away the euros that she offered him. If we give him money, it will make him bold. Axelan nodded and folded the notes away. Better to approach by water, she said. He made the journey by coffin barge. The rectangular craft resembled a box wardrobe turned on its back. It moved at a sluggish pace along the back street canals. Floral perfume cascaded into the water from stonewall outlets carved into the shapes of flowers. The scent of hyacinth clashing with rose petal at a junction. He navigated the liquefied garden with his eyes closed, relying on his sense of smell. As he drew within reach of his destination, he leaned in hard on the tiller. Beneath the surface, he felt the push rudder press hard against the brickwork. The boat turned tightly towards a low, brightly lit archway. He ducked as he passed underneath. Inside, there were men loitering on a landing stage, Farax and two others. I am here to see Elijah, he declared. And what business? Missing property. They were already patting him down as he stepped out of the swaying boat. He was led up three flights of stairs to a large drawing room, decorated with faux renaissance plasterwork that had once been part of a hotel. In one corner, some young men were playing a violent video game on a big screen television, their faces bathed in a shifting blue glow. The Christmas presents were grouped together on top of an antique dining room table amidst separate piles of stolen property. The gold foil wrapping paper absorbed the overhead light from an electric chandelier casting formless molten reflections. Elijah was smoking a water pipe. He beamed blearily at his visitor. My friend, have you come to work for me at last? Melko motioned towards the table. I have come for the gifts you have taken with the gold pepper. Did you not hear? They fell into the canal and were lost. Melko slowly shook his head. No, I did not hear. You are thinking this is all grabby, beg and take, said Elijah. His ha- he waved his hand at the treasure trove on the table. This is commerce in action. Anyone who brings goods to my territory must pay a tribute so I can afford to protect them from thieves. Tonight is Christmas Eve, so they must pay a present tax. You are the main thief here. The police will not tolerate your behavior. The gangster flashed two perfect rows of yellowing teeth. (laughs) The police can fuck themselves. They have never met a man like me. Axlam will make notification in the morning if you do not return what is taken. Their eyes locked for a moment. Then the hooker stupor appeared to regain its hold upon Elijah and his gaze dulled. I am feeling generous, he announced to the room, his voice cracking from the smoke. The boys crowded around the television ignored him. You may take out of here whatever you can carry. Anything that falls, you must leave behind. And you must walk. No bots. Melko approached the table. He stacked the four box shapes on top of each other. The final present was baggy and shapeless. He balanced it on top. As he lifted and turned, Elijah took hold of his forearm did This to me, my home nation, I would feed you to the dogs. <laughs> we are no longer in our home nations. The gangster's smile faded. He let go roughly, causing the topmost gis- gift to slide off the pile. It struck the floor with a muffled slap. Melko ignored it. He walked towards the exit. Nobody helping with the door, shouted Elijah. If my men see you again, before the new year, they will gladly kill you. Farax grinned. He lifted his polo shirt, showing off the gun in his waistband. Melko freed one hand from the bottom of the present stack and pushed down on the door handle. The address he had been given faced onto a secluded garden courtyard. It was a tall, cream-coloured house. Terracotta coining scaled the corner walls. The button for the bell was made from bone china, veined internally from a pattern of leafy blue tendrils. An attractive young woman with long, dark hair answered the door. She regarded the taciturn figure who stood before her, and then the column of presents at his feet. Found them, she said. Behind her, a Christmas tree blazed with yellow lights reflecting in the warped metallic surfaces of the shiny baubles. Melko felt an interior warmth bleeding out a few feet beyond the doorstep before it dispersed into the cold night. He could see the foot of a staircase and white painted banisters that curled round at the bottom. Out of sight, he could hear the sound of tiny feet scampering on the carpet. The voice of a little girl called out. It's Santa Claus! The woman turned her head towards the stairs. Go back up, please, Martha. I want to see. I thought you were in bed. Graham, can you? Daddy, it's Santa. He's here, cried the girl. You already met him, reasoned the woman. Do you remember in London? He's very busy tonight. He's got lots of presents to deliver. A man's voice in American said, Come on, squirt. I'm going to fly you all the way back to bed. The girl yelped loudly. Here I come. Got you! The girl's high-pitched screams of delight faded into the house as she was carried away. Sorry about that, said the woman. There is one gift missing. When will we get that? It is not possible to get it. She looked him in the eyes, studying him. I understand. Thank you. Actually, I think that one was for Graham. I don't expect he would have worn it anyway. <laughs> I'd invite you in, but it's late and Martha thinks that you're Father Christmas. <laughs> a smile crossed her face as if, an, as if an idea had suddenly taken root. As honorary Father Christmas, I don't suppose you'd like a glass of milk and a mince pie? She retrieved both items from the foot of the tree where they were anchoring a sheet of paper decorated with a glitter and a child's wayward handwriting. The pie's homemade. Do I tip you? No. She maneuvered the presents just inside the lobby. Okay, well, good night. Happy Christmas. Just leave the glass on the step when you're finished. After she closed the door, He stood in the cold air, sipping from the glass, staring at some silver tinsel stars that were displayed in the upper windows of the building's opposite. The mince pie, warmed by the tree lights, was beginning to crumble. He cupped it in his palm and pushed it into his mouth. He gulped down the last of the milk and placed the glass next to the doorstep. The back canals were fog-bound and desolate. Their stillness was broken once by a trio of men dressed as Persian kings in fake beards and bright-coloured satin, wearing camel costumes around their waists. They stampeded in procession over the silhouette of an arched bridge that spanned the vista ahead, as if they were late for an appointment elsewhere, the trailing dull tin clatter of their bells merging with the darkness.
0: Thank you, So, Our third story, and the last one before the interview, will be Mr. Cromarty of Boston by Richard Smith, read by David Milden. Richard is a writer and critic. His short stories have appeared all over the shop. He's a reviewer for various magazines and a crossword compiler for various others. He also writes books. He lives in Bradford. David is an actor, playwright and founding member of Lies League. His stories, Worms, Feast and Red, were read here and appear in Arachne Press anthologies, London Lies and Weird Lies, both of which are on sale at the interval, if you should so desire. Plays The Flood and Leaves have been produced on the London stage, along with many shorter pieces. David will next be seen on stage in An Enemy of the People at the Union Theatre in January.
4: David! Mr. Cromity of Boston by Richard Smith Outside a cold, clear evening men going about bundled in woolens steam rising from a rubble a horse manure in the road the air steeped in stove smoke. A hard frost in the night mail, if I am any judge. Inside, a a table by a fire, ink and a pen, two heaps of paper, a mirror trimmed with a little holly, a glass on the table beside the paper, and in it, a measure of bourbon whiskey. Between them, The fire and the whiskey almost keep the cold at bay. It's queer to think that before last spring I had barely ever written a word. Aside from the dry documentation I assembled, the legal letters I drafted, the contracts and covenants I compiled in my work at the real estate office. Always, uh, as a younger man, I had attempted poetry. Awful stuff, as young men do, but... I always knew I had no aptitude for it. Soon gave it up. And then, in more recent years, I never seemed to have the time. Now? Tonight? Last night? The night before that? A string of nights and days receding back into the darkness? Time seems to be all that I have. For some time... Days, weeks, they would send a boy around each morning to inquire, uh, begging your pardon, sir, uh, but when might Mr. Cromedy be returning to work? Sometimes I told him, soon, soon. Sometimes I gave him no answer, but only sent him away, angrily this day, with apologies the next. More often I did not even go to the door, but remained in my bed or at my desk and obliged him to call his entreaty through the letterbox. Then, on a morning in March, it must have been cold, for he wore a heavy scarf and stamped snow off his boots in the hallway, Mr. Van Hooven paid a visit. I was still in my slippers. A small and almost forgotten part of my brain acknowledged the tribute. It was not as if they had sent Mr. McKeever himself, of course, but they might very well have sent only a Mr. Bumbridge or a mere Mr. Gladstock. He was kind. After his fashion, he inquired after my health. He said that it was a little early for him, being not much after nine, but that I might go ahead and drink, if I liked We spoke of the firm's business of lettings, rents, evictions, mortgages, notions as dead and dull to me as fossils. Then, not without awkwardness, but with an air, too, of seasoned authority, "'he told me some things that I already know, "'that it is a pity, but young women, "'be they never so hale and hearty, "'do take fever sometimes and die, "'that it is a crime, shame before God, Mr. Cromarty, "'but young babes, be they never so innocent,' I put in, "'be they never so blameless. "'Even so,' he said, "'they do sicken sometimes, "'they too do die sometimes.' I thanked him again, offered him a glass to warm his journey back to Hofstadter Street, fetched him a piece of wine cake from the kitchen wrapped in a napkin, saw him to the door, helped him in the hallway with his boots. The fellow suffers from a sore hip, waved him away, closed the door. As I remember, Maggie came into my life that day. Now I stand at the window and watch the street. In cat lopes along the sidewalk. Across the road, there is a faint light in the slotted windows of the old jailhouse. We call it that, although it has not served in that capacity for some decades now. It passed into private hands in the 50s. A uh, Mr. Van Hooven handled the business and thence was bequeathed to a trust of charitable gentlemen who, for the time being, maintain the property as a a refuge for indigent children. I consider the faint light. They will need firewood enough tonight. At their length, I uh, return to my little desk. I regard the top page of paper, a third filled with my unruly cursive script, and I take a sip of whiskey. The thing is expected by Mr. Prendergast no later than the 24th. Today is the 21st. I sit and I take up my blackened pen. In the mail this morning, there was a letter from a minister in a place called Darien, Connecticut. He was displeased with me. He said that I had these, these were his words, I had birthed an imp. She is willful and unchristian, the minister wrote. She is discourteous and boylike. She is bold and presuming. She is imperious and grubby. She is intrusive and without shame. She is wild and unnecessary. <laughs> it made me smile. Indeed, she is. But this, the holy nutmegger went on, was by no means the worst of it. The worst of it was this that she goes. Unpunished this imp unpunished she she learns no lesson, is taught no moral, and feels no stick or cane, mister Cromedy, goes scot free, quite scot free. It made me smile. I must write to thank the good Reverend. They died. Two days apart, but we buried them on the same day. Anne and Elizabeth. We buried them both on january sixth, 1882. They were laid in life still and lie still in coupled graves at Milk Row. Anne was 20 and Elizabeth, a little short of a year. They do die, be they never so innocent. My wife and daughter both died baptized. They are in heaven, I suppose, but I can just as easily suppose that they are not. All I can state for certain is that I am not, that James Cromedy is not, that James Cromedy is here still in Boston, this cold December Boston in smoke and dark, filth in the streets, the weeping of children unheard beyond the jailhouse wall. They did not want to die, and certainly, and Elizabeth I am sure, I did not want them to die. Dr. Prazniak, he did not want them to die, even as he counted his dollar bills. And our own Reverend Longhouse, he did not want them to die, though I suppose he knew their souls were bound for a great reward, and yet they did die. Yes, they did. She had not done one thing wrong. That, that is difficult for a fellow to stomach Oh, Anne may have sinned in small ways, spoken sharply to a maid or to her mother, envied some other girl's hat, let slip down one time when she cut her finger with a kitchen knife. But Elizabeth cannot have done one thing wrong. She had no time to do anything wrong. She did nothing but sup her mother's milk and babble her lovely nonsense and fumble with her toys and listen to the stories we told her. Sometimes she cried, but there's no sin in crying or, God help me. After Mr. Van Hooven had left me, I sat for a little while, emptying first my glass and then the remainder of the bottle. It was then that I went a little unsteadily to my desk and wrote the first story, and then in quick succession the second, the third, and the fourth I was resolved from the moment that the nib touched the page that Maggie Misbehavior, it was and is a silly name, would do exactly as she pleased. And it was no less of a resolution of mine, reverend nutmeg that she would suffer no consequence, no retribution for all her mischief, that she would feel no belt or whip or stick or cane, that she would take no moral and learn no lesson. The man that would strike her would be outfoxed and fall into a mud puddle. The woman that would scold her would find her path diverted and would later spread hot mustard on her bread in place of butter. Maggie was to be a naughty little girl, and she was always to go free. Scott, free, as you say, dear minister. The stories would have been for me alone had it not been for Joshua, Anne's elder brother. The pages of those first stories were strewn on the desk when he visited one day. He read them, laughing, for the first time, I think, in weeks. And when next he visited, he brought with him his friend, Mr. Prendergast. Mr. Prendergast is one of these uh, modern fellows who cares not a jot for the traditions of morality, but quite the opposite. In fact, wherever Mr. Prendergast spies public decency, his first instinct is to outrage it. (laughs) There isn't a publisher in New England, Joshua told me who would have touched Maggie's misbehavior with a long pole, save for Mr. Prendergast. Things proceeded from there. I'm almost at the end of this second volume. My writing thumb aches. The stack of pages at my left elbow is an inch thick. And on each of them, my little Maggie causes trouble and upsets the respectable and eats the jam and chases the cat and climbs the tree and pinches the pie and breaks the window with a ball and just for fun, Hides crickets in the minister's riding boots. The sorts of uh, things that my Elizabeth never got to do, but was punished all the same. I stand up to stretch my legs and refill my glass. I shall meet Mr. Prendergast's deadline with days to spare. I don't imagine that I shall return to the office afterwards. Besides anything else, it will be uh, Christmas. Perhaps I will call on friends and family. I shall certainly walk the milk road. And there will be affairs to attend to at the jailhouse. In addition to the good reverend's letter, and of course there are many other dozens of letters, addressed mostly but not always in childish handwriting, to Mr. Cromarty, Esquire, or Mr. Crounty, the Arthur, (laughs) or Dear Mr. Comedy, Book Ritter of Boston, USA, or sometimes Miss Margaret Misbehavior. There was also a slim envelope from Mr. Prendergast. Inside, only his card and a check. A considerable sum in authorial royalties, corresponding to some forty-odd thousand copies of the book, Little boys and girls do not mind, it seems. The Maggie misbehavior always goes scot-free. And perhaps their mothers and fathers do not really mind very much either. Earlier today, I spoke again with Mr. Van Hooven. I wished to discuss a point of business, one that had crossed my desk in my last days at the Hofstadter Street offices, the sale of the old jailhouse. Was not the price of Boston real estate rising steeply? Was not the jailhouse in a prime location? Were the charitable old gentlemen expected to sit on their hands forever and let an undoubted profit pass them by? The documents I saw concerned the sale of the holding to a banking firm for conversion to offices. The documents did not say what was to be done with the indigent children, I had to pay above the odds, of course. But I believe the legalities will be concluded by boxing day. I was careful with the paperwork. Mr Van Hooven will see it as all in order. He was somewhat astonished by the proceedings, of course, remar- remarking that mine uh, seemed a frivolous occupation for a full grown man, but that uh, all the same, his dear granddaughter Sarah, did adore that Maggie misbehavior. There remains, as I say, much to be done. Restoration of the crumbling building, new furnishings, well-trained and kindly nurses and teachers, supplies of food, and clothing, fuel, and books, a sign above the door the Elizabeth Cromery House for Children, or some such. Though I have a, a secret hope that in time the children will come to call it Maggie's. My bottle is empty. My fire is dead. There is a basket of firewood in the hallway, but that is not for me. I stand at the misting glass. And I look again at the weak-lit jailhouse windows. I will take it over to them now. There is a hard frost in the night mail. If I am shut.
0: Welcome back after the interval. Uh, it's time for the infamous Lysley Book Quiz. Woo! Baby, it's cold outside and dark inside. So if you think you know the answer, stick your finger in the air like Danger Mouse and give us a ho ho ho. Should we try that? Ho, You're on point. Excellent. So, let's introduce the books.
5: Absolutely, we have a range of uh, marvellous Christmas gifts being the very first. And this is, in fact, five romantic novellas in one, great value. Uh, Rosie has run from an arranged marriage into the arms of Hollywood movie star, Hawk. <laughs> Will she say yes to his Christmas Eve proposal? Well, indeed. (laughs) Who knows? You'll have to read it to find out. Uh, City of Stories from the fantastic Spread the Word uh, City of Stories project containing work by, I think, our very own Liam Hogan. Uh, This is a vast selection of uh, short stories and flash fictions from all around London featuring many London authors and uh, it's uh, an enjoyable read for those who love short stories, which of course we all do. Uh, The American by Martin Booth, turned into a film with George Clooney, must be good, is a thriller. A psychological suspense thriller invested with life and death gravitas. Which is my favourite kind of psychological suspense thriller. Outlaws Inc by Matt Potter. Fascinating. It's Jason Bourne meets James Bond, only it's really happening. And it's happening now. <laughs> That's our non fiction selection. Uh, Owen Shears' Resistance, remarkable, a brilliant and sometimes frightening thriller, says Jan Morris in The Guardian. Can't go wrong. Uh, Glenn Duncan's The Bloodstone Papers, one of our finest writers, says The Independent. Switching seamlessly between the chaos and bloodshed of 1940s India and the multi- multicultural melange of 21st century Britain, Glenn Duncan's sublime new novel finds love in. Both, bit of historical for you. Uh, valuable lessons by Catherine Weeks. Jill Berryman thinks that her school is the asshole of the universe. <laughs> She's more right than she knows. <laughs> Find out how in prevents. minute. And all that is by James Salter. Concerns. It is a major new novel. His first work of fiction in seven years. From his experiences as a young naval officer in battles off Okinawa, Philip Bowman returns to America and finds a position as a book editor. In a world of dinners, deals, and literary careers, Bowman finds that he fits in perfectly, but despite his success, what eludes him, can you guess it, is
0: love. I thought it was money?
5: No, it's love. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. His first marriage goes bad, another fails to happen, but finally he meets a woman who thrills him set him on a course he
0: could never imagine
5: for himself. Perhaps murder. Who knows? Right. <laughs> All right. So and those, those are books. your
0: eight books. You get to pick, assuming you know the answer to my fiendish questions. Question number one. In the children's series by Francesca Simon, who is Perfect Peter's older brother?
5: Ho ho ho! Oh, Henry. It's it correct. is. <laughs> Which of these? Fine books would you like to take home with you tonight? Um, yeah. All the years. All the, the years. Yeah, go, no go, go for the hardback. Always <laughs> go for the hardback. Excellent resale <result, that> <laughs>
0: value. Second question. Tyler's words coming out of my mouth. I used to be such a nice person. A quote from the unnamed narrator in Fight Club. Who wrote it? Oh, ho, ho. oh. Chuck Polinia. It is
5: correct. It is right. And which of these
0: novels tempts you? The one, the one, the one like Liam Hogan. Oh, wise, wise choice.
5: Ah, the prize has already gone. Thank
0: you. Third question. Which cartoonist created Saint Trinian's School?
5: Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yes, sir. Ronald. It was Ronald. Correct. What can we tempt you with?
0: Oh, really, of course. <laughs>
5: Only for you, sir.
0: <laughs> <Only> for you.
5: <laughs>
0: Question four: Who wrote the original "The Naughtiest Girl" series? Uh, oh, oh, oh! At
5: the back
0: there. Is correct. Well done. The- oh. It
5: certainly was. The American Outlaws, Resistance, Bloodstone Papers, Christmas gift.
0: Oh lord. lord, do it. There we go. That'll warm you up in spice. Question five. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Which mag- magical artifact is activated using these words?
5: Oh, oh um. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh, in the oh of yes,
0: lady at the back. The Marauders it's correct! A Harry Potter! <laughs>
5: What what would you like? The American. American. American.
0: Three books to go. Which sugary sweet was Edmund tempted with in *The Lion
5: King*? Oh, right. Okay, you two are obviously together, but I'm going to give it to you because you've got a nice face. It it's was! Of We've got um, historical bloodstone papers, yeah. partly set in India. Yep, that one. Okay. Uh, can we pass that back using a sort of human
0: chain? Thank you. Two questions and we're steaming along. How many sizes too small is the Grinch's heart?
5: Oh, yes. Two. Correct! Absolutely. <laughs> okay, you're getting Christmas gifts. It's Christmas. We'll so find all. out what happens
0: with that proposal. <laughs> Make sure to tell us. One book left.
5: Everything's a
0: play for. Well, that book. <laughs> Pretty much. Which Oxford-educated drug dealer's autobiography was called Mr. Nice?
5: It was
2: It was.
0: <laughs>
5: What a well-educated audience we have!
0: So, in addition to that bumper festive quiz, we have the most valuable liars awards.
5: We certainly do, and the most valuable players uh, awards are given to the actors and authors who have supplied us with the most material. So, in the case of the actors, it's the most number of readings over the year. Okay, so the authors—it's the most number of stories selected. Now, the uh, the acting award was won by someone who has been a stalwart since he joined the company and has read four separate times this year, which is wow. pretty good because we've only had six events. <laughs> uh, it is the mighty, it is the um, it is the inimitable Rich Keeble, and I think he's in the house. <laughs> Congratulations,
0: you sir so are a hero. Apparently, thank you.
5: You may have a T-shirt. The prizes are amazing. A <laughs> mug, or a book. A set, no, a set of books. A set, a set, set of of amazing, books. not merely fantastic. A set of Lysig anthologies. Which would you prefer?
6: I mean, I couldn't turn down the books, could I? You could. Yeah, I'm not interested in the books. Uh, I'll, take, I'll take the books. Yay. Okay, well, that's it.
5: Getting you can probably get them signed. I think Liam's in all of them. No, oh, oh, I'm not. I'm excellent. Are you not. Oh. Well, loser. Um, <laughs> right, and our writing um, heroes, for this year, for 2018, there was a tie for Most Valuable Writer. Uh, and I know they're both in the house because I emailed them today saying, come along... Or it'll be really embarrassing. Uh, they are Anna Savory, who's right there. Give her a large round of applause. And Andrea Parascovides, who's right there. Um, and you guys are going to have to fight it out over a mug or a book. Now, Anna, what did you get last time? Because she's a second time or a here. T-shirt. I got a mug last time. Sorry. Sorry, a T-shirt, t-shirt and a book. T-shirt and book. Definitely a T-shirt. T-shirt. t-shirt, 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 t-shirt okay. T-shirt Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Anna. Oh,
2: yes. Yeah. Not, you. These are rare.
5: Not available for purchase, I'm no. afraid. Sorry, just don't even try. And Andreas?
0: You get the mug. Mm-hmm. Drink for Donna. Thank you so much. Right, shall we crack on with the stories? Yes! That's a little lukewarm. Shall we crack on with the stories? Yes! Thank <laughs> <laughs> oh for
6: that. Right,
0: so... Second half, first story, will be Christman's Present by Lauren Van Schaik, read by Lois Tucker. Lauren is a graduate of the Creating Writing MA at the University of East Anglia, where she won the David Hickman Award. Her short fiction has appeared in the White Review, and her novel in progress, Joplin, was shortlisted for the 2018 Lucy Cavendish College Fiction Prize. Lois has done various bits and bobs and will probably end up doing more. Previous staff includes panning and performing three solo shows as her silent comedy alter ego Lois of the Lane and releasing the miscellaneous EP on Bandcamp, which consists of catchy, silly songs you may enjoy. More details at her website. Lois!
7: Lauren van Schaik. Inside, Chrisman's department store was shimmering and the same, smelling of wax polish and tinsel. I wasn't sure why I brought Sinclair here. A drunken impulse, maybe. But I would always loved it. The chill marble of the first floor. How my pumps clinked on it like teacups. How the glass cabinets and how the glass cabinets glimmered and mirrored into forever. the necklaces draped on velvet hillsides like the Hollywood land sign, the hundreds of gloves folded in prayer. I used to think they got Christmas from this place. At least my Christmas morning stockings from Aunt Mill always came in the same battered Christmas box. but the stockings always worsted and thick, not silk never from here i'd never known the dress that was that had come in that box when it was new i'd only been to christmas for the first time with inez when we were 13. i saw it as clear as today she bought a broderie blouse with money her parents had given her The blouse was beautiful and cool as a dollop of sour cream on the baked potatoes we ate in the third floor cafe afterward, tucked among her boxes. The whole time, I hadn't known where to put my hands. Today, I didn't care for blouses and hats. I saw only Claire, the swagger that made him seem taller than he was. I saw us together in the frosted glass of the front door, in the mirrored counters and in the eyes of the girls behind them, envious and wet. Being with a man was like being in the pictures, I decided. How people looked at you, how a hundred thrilling things could unspool. We wandered between the cabinets and hat stands, and I let my steps grow as unhurried and casual as his. Cameo pins and red leather gloves, bloody as if straight from the kid. We put our fingers to the glass. Paste diamond rings and piano shawls and bakelite bangles and lank strands of mother of pearl. Claire had comments for all of it. How everything was cheap or years behind fashion. How they turned the gas lights down so you couldn't see the bad stitching on the handkerchiefs. "'a straw hat with a flat brim and a tuft of pheasant feathers. "'My aunt would wear this if she ever spent money on anything,' I said, "'and then wished I hadn't. "'Even Invoking Mill had cur- curdled the air. "'But Claire was interested. "'My mother loved to spend money,' he said. "'She spent every once. "'Husbands, boyfriends, uncles. She, d- "'She didn't even have a wit of taste, either.' The floor was slicker than I remembered, and I had to hang on to his shoulder. "'My friend and I used to steal things from here all the time,' I said, before I even realized what was falling from my mouth. Well, I did, and then I taught her. Nice scarves, even jewelry a few times. None of the real stuff locked in the glass cases. Just the costume jewelry, the clip-on earrings and moonstone rings. I used to clump them in my fist— Tuck them up in my sleeve and show Inez later on the sidewalk. Wiggle a bracelet from my wrist to hers when we clasped hands across the street. The gift of my recklessness and rebellion. She'd giggle. You reprobate. And wear that jewelry for a week. Flashing on her pinky finger or riding the crest of her breasts. Claire just laughed. Small towns, he said. Did you ever get drunk first for an added thrill? From his voice, I knew I should be embarrassed a bit. The greed and play-acting crime of girls. I remembered the last time I'd ever done it by Inez, sloppily. A lamb's wool scarf tucked in my winter coat. I tucked it out for her just a half a block from the store when anyone could have seen us. It felt like pulling a magic scarf from my sleeve. She and I hadn't spent time together in weeks by then. She'd been too busy going to the pictures with Lee, and to dances, and the Connor Hotel restaurant, and wearing new clothing. Her mouth was full of it. Everything except how it was to kiss him and feel his body pressed against hers, which was all I wanted to know. I'd snatched the scarf so she'd smile at me, but she just sighed. Aren't you going to outgrow that, Faye? She'd said. Besides, blue isn't my color. I left it behind on a park bench. It was years ago, I told Claire. We were 12 and it was just a joke. Claire had words about the shop girls, too. He pulled me closer to whisper them how one of them was wall eyed and another fat, the one with a chest like a prow. I laughed lean into him. Their eyes stuck to us, knuckles white on their regulation-clasped hands. Maybe it was all shabby. And if Christmas was dowdy and out of fashion, what could I be? I looked at myself slyly in one of the glass cases. I was tawny-haired, cultish, but I must be what sophisticated men wanted men who weren't from round here. Maybe those girls would discuss us later on their break over soda crackers and coffee, the way I always wanted to talk about couples I saw, how they touched if the woman was prettier than me. I always wondered if women with men were prettier than me, but Claire had chosen me somehow, and it was enough to jelly my heart. Claire still had my hand, and... He moved it to his trouser pocket. My fingers found tin, a flask when he drew it out, gin when I gulped it like a mouthful of pine. A woman stopped by a handkerchief case to watch us, a purse in one hand, a hat box in another large as a wheel for an old-fashioned wide-brimmed hat. The ones for ploshes were tidy as cakes. Disapproval twitched her mouth. Claire caught sight of her, too, and took a fat, obvious swallow from the flask. "'It's medicinal,' he called to the woman. "'We're very ill!' She sniffed and shook her head, but kept staring at us, gathering her box and her bag close to her. "'I wish I recognized her from church, maybe. "'If I squinted, she looked like Inez's mother, "'although she couldn't (coughs) have been because Mrs. Balance had been dead since March.' Claire's hand on my lower back slid and settled on my rear, and I felt it in her throat. We were sixteen, Inez and me, watching old newsreels against a sheet in her attic. Mr. Balance had brought home one of the old projectors from his cinema, and Inez knew how to thread it and set it to tick. Films went back to the studios, but there were newsreels, a crate of them half unspooled, like Mississippi eels winding and twitching in a basket. We knew all the best scenes. Inez had sheared them out. Before she wanted to be Lee's wife, she wanted to be a film editor. It was the one job in Hollywood a lady could do. She'd set them playing, and we would stand in the light. Inez louche beside Charles Lindbergh, her face dappled by his crowds, chasing Gilda Gray as she shimmied and jiggled. Me, stuck still, blind in the glare, letting the shadows shift over me. Sacco and Vanzetti, grim and ugly as they faced the electric chair. President Coolidge, stiff and thin as a broom handle. Inez had howled with laughter. How should I be? I asked. Tell me. I know now and I are climbing to the second floor ladies wear and shoes and I feel self-conscious like I did in that attic under the lights and aware of my body but in a way that's excited now and not anxious not my gawkiness and long feet but the curves of me and how Claire touches me carelessly when I stumble over the last of the stairs these are pretty swell, Claire says Pair of pumps, openwork boots, gunmetal trim on red or black patent. Pre-war. In the photograph on the porch, my mother wore a pair of boots like this, but also very 1929. What's old is new again. Whoopie booties. $4.98, the sign them reads. He palms the, the flask of gin to me and grins as I dutifully swallow. Take them he says. I laugh. I'm serious, he says. You said you knew how. Scarves and trinkets. I look skeptically at the heels. I have money in my pocket. I can buy them. I can buy anything in this store, although that doesn't move me. The look on Claire's face does. (coughs) The sarcasm, the dare. (coughs) My hands twitch for the black pair. The leather is slick as oil, and if I try to steal them, I have an idea it will stain my hands and feet. I see myself fumbling with the front doors, my hands too slithery to get a hold. Red, Claire says. More conspicuous. He tugs me so the lengths of our bodies press together. Horseshoes. His breath damp in my ear. He hails an attendant, a timid-looking woman, already dumpy, although her face is still pebbled and pink like a girl's. I tell her my size, and Claire drops onto the velvet bench, where ladies sit to try on stodgy pumps and saddle shoes. The girl ferries the box back obediently, and, as if she knows this is all for him, hands it right to him. He flips off the lid. The pumps are nestled together, toe to heel, in a gauze of tissue paper, the filigree leather, and the rounded toes. I get my battered buckle shoes off and shove them aside, press my feet into the leather. They're a little big, but I do up their ribbon laces, my fingers too clumsy and far away for anything but a rabbit ear bow. Claire watches me stand in the pumps. We look at them in the mirror, tucked discreetly below the bench how my legs stretch in them, how our feet nudge close like in a tango. I just realized you're not wearing any stockings, he says quietly. (laughs) And I'm not sure if I'll laugh or I'll faint. (laughs) In those pumps, we're the same height. I always figured men should be taller, but this sameness with Claire spits a thrill through me. Our eyes are level and mouths and hips and this is better than the pictures better than the newsreels because you get to live behind the scene too the things they can't show between my legs i can feel my heart beating i have the red pumps on my own shoes placed among the tissue paper and left and he has me by the hand and we're hurrying through ladies wear and down the stairs and the pumps are clipping teacups on the marble, although I can't feel my feet, and the only thing I want in the entire world is for him to lie on top of me, so I stop him on the landing and press our bodies tight. It's like tangling limbs underwater. We can hardly help it. He's from the pictures. He's a genius. He's a god, but he's under my hands, and I can have him. His fingers clutch at my rear. I snatch them up, slide them into my mouth, which is slack and wet and open. In that moment, it seems the only thing to do. No one stops us at the door, as if they could, and we walk out into an evening whirling like my mad head with snow.
0: Before our final tale of the evening, and indeed the year, some notices. Next year's themes have been decided by a fiendishly complicated process that involves at least three blood sacrifices and a family pack of (laughs) Maltesers. Here they are. We have love and lust. Before and after. Infinity and Beyond our Annual women and Girls, Toil and Trouble, and, this time next year, Sugar and Spice. The first of these, our Valentine's theme of Love and Lust, will be back at the Phoenix on February the 12th. Stories are due in by January the 6th. As you've probably already forgotten everything I've just said do check the Liars' website for details, where, in addition to themes and deadlines, you'll find recordings of past events going back nearly a dozen years. One final notice. Friends of Liars League, Arachne Press, will be holding their Solstice Shorts event, Noon, on 21st of December, in Blackheath, at noon. It's free, and there will almost certainly be cake. And so... Our final story of the evening will be Santa, Judgment Day, uh, (laughs) by Dennis Saslona. read by Rich Keeble. Ha ha! Gasp! Ooh! These are the reactions that Dennis hopes his stories for adults and children evoke, rather than... His work has... This is not my written bio. This is his <laughs> written bio. I just have to clear that because... His work has muscled its way onto local radio stations, internet story sites, and into BBC Writers' Room. This year, Rich Keeble, MVP, has worked with Martin Clunes, Keith Lemon, Steve Pemberton, Rhys Sheer, smith Dennis uh, Daniel Mays, Susan Mukama, David Mitchell, Harry Enfield, Gemma Whelan, Greg Davies, David Williams, Francis Barber, Bill Bailey, and Idris Alba. Woo! But well, that's nothing compared to performing at Lions League. Rich!
6: Santa, Judgment Day by Dennis Deslona. Merry Christmas, motherfuckers! (laughs) Here I come! The wind ripped away square Jaws' yell as he dived from the stealth bomber and into the belly of the Mexican night sky. Two thousand feet below, the lake was a silver puddle. A second moon. S.J. hugged his Takana sniper rifle tighter to his chest. He was diving into the moon. A Christmas Eve angel of death. A Wenceslas warrior. yee At 800 feet above the villa where Hector Cabello and his cartel leaders were gathered, he pulled the release ring. But before the canopy fully opened, his feet smashed into something solid. His knees jammed into his chest and he was slammed onto his back. For a moment he just lay looking up at the stars while he caught his breath. His legs were bent so far over his head that his knees were touching his ears. The moon swayed as the platform, or whatever it was he had landed on, gently rocked. Absurdly. He thought he could hear the snort of animals and the tinkle of bells. Something warm and sticky stroked his cheek. SJ's heart ramped up to combat speed. He twisted his head and saw a beast from hell. Its stretched head ended in a bulbous muzzle that no doubt contained rows of razor teeth. The top of his head was a mass of frost-covered antennae. SJ tensed as a similar creature nuzzled his arm Worse, rising from behind the convex horizon of his backside Its nose glowing like a miniature sun A third creature appeared Slowly it lowered its muzzle And sniffed at SJ's battle-hardened ass (laughs) Specialist Fort Bragg training kicked in S.J. chopped arm between the eyes. It gave a yelp and was gone. An elbow jab to the left nostril-dropped cheek-licker out of sight. Jerking his legs forward, S.J. sprang up and delivered a headbutt on Red Rednose. Before the creatures could recover, S.J. was on his feet, his unslung rifle on automatic. Back off, you mothers! he yelled. Straining against their harnesses and rattling their bells, The mother's backed off. (laughs) S.J. staggered as the wind caught his canopy. His chest tightened as he looked over the rim of the platform and saw that the lake was still at least 600 feet below. He hit the release button and his canopy ghosted into the night. S.J. realised that he was standing in a friggin' sled. The only other occupant was this old, white-bearded guy in a red suit half-buried in a pile of silver, foil-wrapped boxes. S.J. looked up, searching for the means of support that kept the sled suspended above the lake. There was no Chinook or any other form of delivery vehicle, just the pale, mocking moon. The harnessed animals floated in a disorganised group a little way from the sled. The one with the big red nose and watering eyes flashed him a hurt look. (laughs) Then the guy in the fancy dress outfit groaned. "Okay, Grandpa, SJ poked the rifle into the guy's considerable belly. What's the scenario? The scenario, (laughs) the old guy said, rubbing his head and pushing his hood lopsided. Spill the beans or I'll spill your guts, said SJ. The guy seemed not to hear, just shook his head and muttered, Too much brandy and too many
2: pies.
6: (laughs) Way below the sled, white and red lights flashed, accompanied by a distant crackling like burning logs. Oh, look, the old guy exclaimed. A party? (laughs) (laughs) Just tell me what's going on here, SJ demanded, and make it quick. Oh, my, the old guy said as he stumbled back, looking at the sled floor. Some of the aftershave prezies have come loose. He picked up a cylindrical orange object with a skull and crossbones on the side. I don't remember bringing this brand. I wonder what it smells like. Don't pull that pin! yelled SJ. Don't what? asked the old guy, the pin in his left hand and the cylinder in his right. SJ swung the butt of his rifle, sending the stun grenade and a chunk of knuckle skin into the night. The darkness was ruptured by a searing white light and thunderous crash. S.J. and the old guy tumbled among the boxes as the sled rocked in the aftermath of the explosion. Something rolled against S.J.'s leg. Fearful of losing his last stun grenade, he grabbed it and thrust it into his pocket. There was a loud bang, and something clattered against the underside of the sled. Oh, goody! Fireworks! The old guy declared, looking over the side. The animals were becoming skittish. The nose of the lead creature glowed like a giant traffic light stuck on red as it glared with clear resentment at SJ. (laughs) A streak of flaming orange whooshed behind the sled and erupted into a fireball. Yoo-hoo, the old guy called and waved his arms at the revelers below. It's anti-aircraft, dumbass, called SJ. He yanked the old guy from the edge. They're trying to take us out! Another explosion. Closer this time. The sled jerked forward as the animals careered off in a wild gallop. Easy, Rudy, the old guy pleaded, then dived on top of SJ as a line of orange fireballs arced towards them. A blue light flashed on SJ's wrist console. A recorded voice squawked from the earpiece, which now dangled loosely on his chest. Warning, warning, pending missile attack. Well, shit. Shit. S.J. shoved the old guy away. Gotta take evasive action. He began ripping handfuls of foil from the parcels. Stop! It's not Christmas morning yet, protested the old guy. S.J. tore the foil from a particularly large box that was found to contain a life-size inflatable Donald Trump. (laughs) S.J. threw the shredded foil into the darkness and saw the fiery launch of another missile. Are you mad? the old guy exclaimed. Jeff! S.J. shouted, to confuse their radar! A thousand lions roared in the night. The sled was almost overturned by the streak of fire that ripped through the skies just metres away. The animals went wild, tugging at their harnesses to the jingle of bells. S.J. brandished his fist at the diminishing glow. Ha! Missed, your mother- the missile turned. Should it be doing that? The old guy asked. SJ watched in dismay as the missile rushed toward them. God damn it, said SJ flatly. It must be heat seeking. But what the frig have we got up here that's hot enough for it to lock onto? He looked at Rudy.
2: <laughs>
6: Rudy glared back at him. Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. SJ took aim at the red nose. Before he could shoot, the flash of an explosion drove a storm of searing lights into his brain. The blast shattered the sled beneath his feet. He was falling. The moon raced around in crazy circles. A Niagara of air raged about him, but changed in turn as he threw out his arms and stabilized his descent by using the webs of his glider suit. The moon stopped spinning and he could see the lake, much larger now, rushing up to meet him. A faintly glowing nugget dropped past, arcing down like a little red meteor. S.J. was pleased that at least the missile had scored a direct hit on Red Nose. His already pumping heart quickened as the outline of the villa became clearer. S.J. grinned defiantly, and mentally reciting the mantra, For God and country... He aimed himself towards the lighted ground-floor window. S.J. missed the window,
2: <laughs>
6: instead demolishing the glazed front door and taking out the armed heavy guarding in the entrance. The thick fur rug on which he landed hurtled across the highly polished hall floor, converting gravitational force into a horizontal skid. Fifteen black-suited goons leapt up from their chairs around the long table as S.J., screaming and swaddled in a tiger skin, cannoned in on them. A complete break was put on his forward motion when he crashed into the wooden panelling beside the stone fireplace. By the time S.J.'s consciousness had returned enough to block the evacuation signal his brain was sending to his bowels, the heavies had him covered with a multitude of armament. A smart, Alec voice in the back of SJ's head said, Well, shit. Then, a furious clattering followed by a billow of soot diverted all eyes to the fireplace. The old guy howled as he embedded into the blazing logs. Then he howled again and leapt off, landing spread-eagle before Hector Cabello at the head of the table. A box tumbled out of the old guy's arms and burst open at Hector's feet. In a hiss of compressed air, Donald J. Trump slowly filled out before the amazed onlookers. A speaker inside the dummy crackled. Fake news. It's all fake news. (laughs) Hector flashed a smile. And to think, he growled, and never believed this hombre was real. (laughs) SJ Storm's chance. His fingers closed around the stun grenade in his pocket. The flash would give him the vital seconds he needed to grab a weapon, then it would all be over. Mission accomplished. In just one heartbeat, SJ launched his attack. With both hands to his ears and eyes clamped shut, he waited for the explosion. The black suits were stunned all right. They all stared baffled by the can of David Beckham intimately deodorant slowly spinning on the floor before him. sj was just wondering if maybe something had gone wrong when he heard the old guy's quivering voice ho ho ho, ho. merry christmas every one S.J. heard a series of metallic clicks. Steel ratcheting against the pull of powerful springs, and then that damn smart alec voice inside his head saying, Well, she... <laughs>
0: Thank you, Rich. With that, our evening is at an end. We shall meet again next year, I hope. Do stick around to chat and drink if you can, and if you can't, be prepared for us to talk about you after you're gone. (laughs) Either way, please raise the roof one final time for our very naughty author's and our nicey-nice actors. Merry Christmas, and good night!